Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Rabbit is over. It's time to eat the finger. All around her, people are dying, and only Rose knows why. You gotta come quick. You gotta come quick and get me. It's Rose. It's gotta be. Something's happened to Rose. Don't scream. Don't panic. He's dead. And the dead can't hurt the living. Rabbit. This movie, Andy, Rabbit, have you heard of this? Yeah, you know, David Cronenberg told a story about the finger, eating the finger. Yeah. And he said that in that scene, there apparently were reports, somebody had told him that in theaters, uh, when the movie was released, that college-age boys, I guess, were were passing out at the finger-eating scene. Really? And the theory was that it was because, you know, it's a very 
Roman Catholic society. And their theory was that it was involving, uh, you know, fears of circumcision or something. Fears, fears of circumcision. I don't know how much is to any of that story, but uh, but it was a fun one for Cronenberg to relay. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it was great to hear that none of the women were passing out. <laughs> it's just the men. Uh, yeah, well, that was a good one. And we're going to talk all about that. Uh, this is, of course, uh, David Cronenberg's 1977 film, Rabid, follow-up to uh, the film uh, also Rabid. Shivers. Shivers. <laughs> from last week. Uh, and I have to tell you a bit of a, a personal story. I, this is the first, uh, I, you, we can call this horror, but I'll, I'll, I'll subgenre it, body horror film, that uh, I, I got one of my kids to watch all the way through with me. My. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end, in spite of, yeah, there were definitely some pulling blankets over heads during some of the, the more uh, grotesque sequences. And uh, I, I had told the story about Marilyn Chambers and her background. And so there was a comment about, boy, they're really leveraging her experience, aren't they? (laughs) Which I thought was funny. Uh, But we got all the way through it. And her response at the end was, yeah, you know what? Not that scary. I don't even know what to do with that bit of information, but I can tell you that it opens, opens doors to my uh to my movie buddydom not I'm pretty excited even that about that scary did you watch it with your 10 year old i <laughs> no i <didn't. laughs> there, you know there is a uh i i think definitely a thing with horror that will perpetually i think this holds true for a lot of genre films that will perpetually be um tying to its era because once you've done something in a horror movie and you've kind of pushed those boundaries, the next filmmakers are going to push those boundaries. And it's kind of a continual progression of boundary pushing until we yeah. get to some of the much darker types of horror movies that we have today. I mean, look at the, some of the stuff that Rob Zombie is doing as compared to what Cronenberg was doing here. Yeah, it's not going to seem as scary. And I think that it's just a filmmaking style. I think that if you took her to the theater and watched this in 1977, it probably would have seemed very scary because you would not have seen things like this to kind of have tempered your expectations. Totally agree, which is why I think that the new rule in my house is we have to watch all horror movies in chronological order. So... This is actually a perfect series because uh, we can just go in order. And over the course of a couple of weeks, she'll get about uh, a two decades worth of uh, of exper- exposure to Cronenberg horror. It's perfect. That's perfect. hilarious. Yeah, that's one way to do it. Uh, how do you want to? How do? You, how would you like to start the big questions? Well, I think let's let's start looking at Cronenberg himself. I mean, this is his second big film that he's had a chance to make after Shivers, which is the movie we talked about last week. And of course, he did have his his uh, few avant-garde kind of uh, experimental films that he did before these. But as far as films that he was getting an opportunity to release in kind of major theaters and to draw audiences this is his second one and for somebody who didn't go to film school he even talks about how he really looked at these first two films as his film school so from what he did in shivers to what he did now what improvements are we seeing are we seeing a progression of a of a storyteller here first of all there's a threat Right. I, I feel like he really made good on, you know, a, a disease, uh, a horrific element, a transfer, a body transformation that's legit scary. Right. That that mm-hmm. actually has a, a threat to it, because I don't think in Shivers they made good on the the fear part. Right. The threat part. I, we, we At least I walked out a little bit uh, perplexed. I think that he actually his his 1975 self before he made Rabid came to the future, listened to our show about Shivers that we yeah. did last week, and said, you know that Pete, he's got a point, went back <laughs> time and, and got ra- rabid ready. I think Dude, that must I, be I am, what happened. I'm relieved to hear you say that, because I have to say, <laughs> I, I do feel uh, vindicated 
in <laughs> some respects. Uh, I I feel like the uh, the the whole idea of of something that um, you know some fearful element that makes makes you uh, that changes you and makes you again we have this this sort of patient zero trope going on um, where. Rose becomes the the central agent and um you know actually spreads this disease that that really does wreak havoc in a community. I thought that was spot on. I particularly enjoyed the way her line ended. Uh you know, which we can we can talk about the climax to her arc, you know, later if you want, but I feel like that was perfect punctuation on a truly fearful narrative point. Like I get it. It was scary and I appreciated it. It's an interesting progression going from shivers to this in that film it was kind of this sexual slug thing that basically went from person to person and caused them to become these like sex zombies Mm -hmm. here it is very specifically this one woman rose who got into an accident and this experimental surgery they did left her with uh, a need to feed on blood i'll talk more about the interesting element of vampire bats that Cronenberg was thinking about here. But um, she feeds on blood, and that's all her motivation is here. She she needs to eat, and the only thing she can eat is blood, and the only way she can do it is with this armpit <laughs> proboscis that she has. Yeah. And, but I, I love this idea that here she is just eating because this is the only way she knows how or can, and without even realizing it, she's leaving this horrifying uh, just mess of crazies in her wake. It was really interesting to see and and come to that point later in the film where she is uh, told, you are patient zero, basically. You're the one who's causing all this. They actually refer to her as typhoid Mary in this case, right? Right, exactly. And to see what that does to her and and kind of the change that she has at the end of the film, I found extremely interesting. I do too, because it really is a story about her and the experience of her wreaking havoc across the, the, you know, the swath of destruction that she leaves behind her. And that's something we didn't get in Shivers. And I think it was a poor film because of it, because we lost the, the, uh, the first patient in that movie so early in the film, like in the opening, you know, sort of credit run. And and I think this is this movie is an improvement over that particular story. It's it's the same story had the schoolgirl stayed alive. Right. <laughs> right. For a, yeah, a, a little right. while longer. Um, right. and, and so I think this this is a definite improvement. Are there any other aspects of the film as far as the storytelling structure or anything else that you see in kind of the screenwriting itself that works better, um, that shows Cronenberg progressing? You know, I I noticed a maturing of the dialogue. I found more of the dialogue more believable. Not all of it. I I did not find, uh, uh, you know, all of the words coming out of all of the mouths uh, particularly believable, but it was more uh, human. Uh, I think it was it demonstrated sort of a maturing of just being able to write character voices in a way that I thought was was more compelling. And I think the film in general, the tone and tenor of the film was a more mature hand uh, to the film. And I think that's uh, that that's a notable improvement uh, for me. Yeah. And I I I felt that Cronenberg had a better handle on how to really focus on one character and and. That was an element of Shivers that was a little tricky is, you know, you don't really know who the protagonist is for quite a while. And then, uh, you know, and then you're finally following him through to the end. But it takes a while to get there. In this particular case, we meet uh, we meet Rose and her boyfriend right away. And sure, she's kind of the, uh, you know, the creature in this as she goes around, but she's the one we're following. She's our protagonist of this particular story. And that's that also I felt was a sign of uh, a filmmaker who's 
getting better at figuring out how to tell stories like this. Well, and I think it capitalizes on the mystery that comes with her, right? That, you know, to your point, we're following her around. And for much of the film, we believe that she is menacing in in what she's doing, right? And until yeah. we get into the third act where we realize that 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 menacing behavior isn't menacing at all. It is, it's a, a new natural behavior that she can't control. And I think that's a, a particularly compelling uh, transformation for this character. It's not something that I mean. W- the easy route, and maybe the Shivers Cronenberg route, would have been to to not invest her with with that sort of change in the third act. And and I think it makes her it it turns her from being this menacing monster that we're following to a sympathetic character again. And I think that's that's great. What about the body horror? Do you feel it, it works better here? I'm I want to talk to you about the proboscis. Mm, that's that certainly is part of the body horror. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, you know, it's I did you find it just a strange straight up strange choice uh what they ended up and I will describe what they did. Like he, he the 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 fear element was, you know, this surgery uh that they did ended up causing her to grow a essentially a I call it the armpit anus. It's the armpit anus <laughs> penis. With the penile The, the anal penis. Yes. Because there's a little sphincter in her <laughs> in her inner like bicep. And when she hugs somebody, this penile proboscis with a stinger a comes out of it. And it it goes into somebody where she's hugging them, right? That I, I felt like that was an interesting choice. Did you truck with that? Did that did you find that scary? I, I don't think scary is the word that you use in a case like this. I, I, I think I think it's off-putting, and I think that's more in line with what he's trying to do. Is it something that just you've never seen, and it just seems unnatural to ha- to be feeding from your armpit? And yeah. I think that's why it ends up working in this kind of body horror way, because it's just so awkward and uncomfortable and kind of just disgusting in the way that the whole thing plays out. I. Actually, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, the the whole idea is it's, you know, these grafts that they're doing. And uh, in order, I mean, I, so she was in a motorcycle accident with her boyfriend at the beginning. The motorcycle lands on her and destroys her intestines with its fire. And so they basically have to shorten her intestine uh, system, her intestinal tract. And, the, you know, she's she's in a coma they leave her in a coma while they're waiting to finish this surgery surgery and then they do skin grafts off of her leg and they put it up in her armpit i believe and somehow the process of all this stuff going on in her body changes and uh, she has to feed out of her armpit um interestingly cronenberg was initially calling this film mosquito because of this proboscis that comes out because feeding with that because of the nature of feeding on blood he decided to change it to a vampire bat as kind of the kind of the describer that he would use because and i didn't know this their intestinal tract is very short so they they in order to digest food they don't have a long time for it to pass through it before it's gone and so they can only eat things that that digest incredibly quickly that happens to be blood you can't eat meat or anything like that it won't digest and so because of the fact that she had such a short intestinal system now the only thing that she can eat to actually get any sustenance is blood and so somehow because of the intestinal damage her body develops this new organ to eat with it seems very abstract and peculiar, but it fits in context of this. I, I, I still question the placement of it, but again, it it's just uncomfortable and off-putting. So I think in the end, it ends up working. Well, and I, I, I uh, you know, I know that there are uh, a lot of people that have very, you know, sensitive places on their bodies that they have a lot of fear around it. This is a, a, a super unprotected space on the body this and the forearm like the inner forearm i have a thing about the inner forearm you do something in a movie with even it's just injections with a forearm and i'm out so i know that these unprotected like underbellies uh are are places that are ripe for body horror 
because it's just scary because it's too easy to imagine something happening to yourself. So I like that. It's also a super practical uh, choice because it allows you to hide uh, a lot of the the you know gruesome stuff and save money right so you don't have to actually um create a, a lot of the actual interaction effects because it's they're already in a hug and all of the the horror that's going on between them is obscured by body parts so you get a, a blood bag and it starts leaking out the side um kind of getting shirts wet and that can be just as horrifying as actually seeing you know ripping flesh so uh, i i think that's a it's a smart choice even if you don't have to be moved by the body horror part of it. Um, I, I think yeah. in that respect, it worked very well. Yeah, I think in context of what Cronenberg is trying to do, he's creating something that's that you haven't seen before that is really shocking. And sure, it's not out and out scary, but it's it's just creepy in a weird and unexpected way. Was it the Shivers amoeba, the penile amoeba, that they just, put in an armpit rectum i don't think so because when you when you're looking at it when she's feeding on somebody i want to say it's the doctor you actually get a close-up of it as and it looks almost transparent because you can see the blood kind of like pulsing through it that was a cool effect yeah absolutely um, it was uh, Al Griswold who was in charge of the special effects for that, and uh, I think did a very effective job of creating something kind of weird and creepy. But did you get that sense, though? That's what I couldn't shake. Like, I kept trying to think, is this, are we trying to create some sort of unifying, like, uh, you know, spiritual universe, Cronenberg horror spiritual universe? Is that something that the, you know, those who read tea leaves ever try to to poke out? Because it felt very much like a follow on to Shivers in a way that that I think, you know, both both the narrative and the, you know, what the film appears to be saying. I think there's an element to that. But I think when you're dealing with kind of body horror types of things like that, any sort of body part that is like projecting or or pushing itself into another body, it's going to kind of have a little bit of that feel that, you know, that penile sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think to a certain extent it makes sense that they kind of seem similar at least in this disease spreading sort of way that Cronenberg is uh doing in these first two films. I mean I don't think it's necessarily going to play out like in Scanners or Videodrome. Yeah, right. So, I mean but it's entirely different types of body horror. What do you think of the Koenig uh, Institute? Because the, the the here's another you know I, thing you could almost read this as a remake or a, a second try, uh, where we move from this uh, you know the the Starliner, this self-contained um, you know sort of laboratory, and a disease that gets out that breaks out, and in the in Shivers, uh, the disease breaks out at the very end. Of the movie in in the Koenig case, the Koenig Institute or it breaks Keloid. out. Keloid, Keloid, Keloid Clinic. Yeah, it's weird. Keloid, Keloid doesn't even have any meaning to me anymore. Uh, Keloid Clinic. <laughs> uh, it it actually breaks out earlier, but it's the same sort of thing, right? This Keloid Clinic is this self contained, isolated, you know, very remote plastic surgery clinic where you know. The elite go to have work done, and uh, and yet here again is this story of a thing, this technological magic of plastic surgery. Look what it can do for you, and then look what we hath wrought. This was, I I don't actually know when plastic surgery became a big deal, uh, but it sure feels like to my my sense memory of it is that it was right around this time. And um, certainly the early 80s, we started talking a lot about getting work done. So here we are. Here is a place where technological majesty happens and something escapes that is horrible from it. Does his take on that same sort of thematic uh, direction work better for you here than it did in the in the last movie in any way? With the Starliner, I think he was very much kind of making like this big, you know, community inside this one particular space and, you know, very middle class type of community and speaking kind of to the nature of the the class and these people and kind of breaking it down a little bit through this disease. 
I think he is doing something similar here, but it's definitely more in line with this plastic surgery angle. You know, people who have money to to pay to get these plastic surgeries that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a necessary surgery. Often it's just a surgery that you're doing to because you want your lips to be fuller or you want your 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 you know, you, to remove certain fat or your nose to be a different shape or whatever. Or your it is. eyes, get your eyes yeah. tucked, straightened, whatever. Exactly, you do. exactly. So it has turned into something that feels like an elite sort of type of surgery. Not to say that there aren't people who need it who have had horrible injuries, things like that. Um, but I think largely, I think, especially when you look at shows like Nip Tuck, it really is looking at this cosmetic version of what plastic surgery has become. And I feel like the Kelloid Institute is a little bit acknowledging that. And again, another opportunity to kind of poke at these things. I don't feel that he is speaking as much to the nature of plastic surgery as he was in the last film to like this type of community. I felt like in this particular film, it was more about uh, this one really felt more about the spreading of disease. And, you know, she's she's not even aware she's spreading a disease, but she is. She just is going around, you know, uh, being intimate with people, basically. Well, it did to me, too, though. There is in the beginning when the accident first happens. And this is, I think, where that statement occurs, uh, you know, about, you know, what this place represents, you know, elective science, not, uh, you know, protective or rehabilitative medicine is. Uh, when they say, hey, there's an accident out on the road, and it's the patients who see through binoculars that an accident has happened on the road and somebody needs help. And they alert the doctors, and there's this moment, right? There's a moment where the doctors say, oh, should we take this on? Like, is this a thing that we want to do? This is not the business we're in. And and I think that is a really important sort of cornerstone, a a thematic cornerstone for this movie, that, that here are the people with the skills, the abilities, the knowledge to actually help save lives. And it takes them a minute to say, hey, should we do that? You know, just because we can, should we save a life? (laughs) <laughs> and and that is is almost you know as as horrific as the the body horror any of the body horror in here that he gives us this moment of of choice i agree to a certain extent i also feel like you know they're not necessarily set up like an emergency room they're not going to have all the tools that they need to actually properly fix somebody and clearly they don't because they can't complete this surgery cuz you know, they just don't have everything. And now they have to wait a month for for something to happen. And so uh, it's an interesting element that they do bring in that these are people who aren't necessarily emergency surgeons who now are forced to kind of do this emergency surgery. I saw it as more of a like I didn't I didn't see that they leaned in quite as heavily on the um, on the we're not equipped, but uh, on the we don't want to element. Yeah. I think that's that's what makes it scary to me. Yeah. I uh, just as a side note, uh, a keloid, the doctor's name was Dr. Keloid, and Cronenberg named him after keloids, which are a type of scar. They're the type of scar that, you know, it will it, when you it will grow and typically it will end up being much larger than the wound that caused the scar. It's a big skin. Thing. Oh, OK. And, yeah. So they're called Boy, colloidal scars. He is a colloidal scar. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the of the romance? So we start with uh, you know this the, the Rose is on the motorcycle with her boyfriend, and then they they part ways. This is an area that Cronenberg certainly could still use some work as far as how he develops the stories. Yeah, we get that they're together because they leave together and they're riding a motorcycle together, but we don't get any sense of this relationship. That's pretty much it. (laughs) And and then the accident happens. She's left there. He comes to visit and, you know, has conversations with the doctors and, and it's kind of, we see him on and off throughout. And then they finally see each other again at the end when he comes over to her friend's house to find her, you know, in the middle of feeding on her friend. And uh, which is a great moment. I love that kind of like that Dracula moment where she raises her arm over her face. Yeah. And when he walks in and you can see the little proboscis in her armpit, it's a really interesting moment. But that's like it. And then the final conversation that they have on the phone. Um, 
it's not a very well-developed relationship. And that's uh, one of the more frustrating things with the story because to really find more sympathy at any point with our protagonist as she's going through all the stuff she's going through, especially as she as he's dealing with her, you really want kind of that sense of a relationship there. Even just another scene at the beginning, just to kind of help solidify them as a couple, you know, that would have helped. Yeah, right. Because that just opening with them on the motorcycle tells us nothing. And especially in a movie, uh, you know, if anything, we've learned over the course of the 70s that, um, you know, it's like it's easy to supplant a relationship with like a, a casualness. Right. That that, um, you know, seeing two people on a motorcycle doesn't tell us anything uh, about their the sincerity of their relationship. So I I think that's a missed beat. I also don't think that that Frank Moore as uh, Hart Reed was uh, all that compelling of uh, performance. Right. I I think he is a very slow burn all the way to up to their to the discovery when he jumps in on Mindy's in Mindy's uh, apartment and discovers her they have their conversation out in the hallway which I think is great I actually really like that intensity but he's you know really even slow burn all the way to that um, to that final sequence and so I never got a, a feeling that he was particularly invested in the relationship apart from just being incidentally present but I don't know if that's something we can really blame on him or the script. I totally, totally agree. Right. Like, I mean, because we've talked about, uh, you know, one other film that I see that he's been in, and that was uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight, but he was just surveillance man. So I can't, mm-hmm. I can't speak to his quality of, of acting. But what um, we can speak to is we also know this relationship is underwritten and maybe yeah. he's doing the best he could. Right. What and that's, that's, I think, where we have to leave it. But it's uh, interesting, you know, though, we, we had a similar, more. I at least had a similar response to Dr. St. Luke in the, in Shivers, that it was just very underplayed, um, you know, part. Like, I just, it, it was hard to to find that investment uh, in, in the character. And he was ostensibly our protagonist. Certainly. I, I felt, though, that with him, perhaps it was just screen time. There yeah. was more to his story. Right, right. With, with Hart. Underwritten. Yeah, we just don't get anything from him. And we get little conversations with doctors periodically, but I just, I know nothing about him as a character, really. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. really flat. Shall we talk about the Marilyn Chambers thing? We should. This is an interesting uh, story. So, so Cronenberg, and uh, uh, he, he really wanted Sissy Spacek. He had seen her in... Uh, Badlands and thought she would be great. He tried convincing the producers and they didn't like her freckles. They didn't like her accent. They just felt she just didn't have what the film needed. This was, of course, before Carrie and before she turned into kind of a big horror star. And so they had to, he had to pass on that idea of Sissy Spacek, who he thought would be perfect. And uh, Ivan Reitman is the one who said, let's get, uh, you know, a porn star that can kind of help sell it if we find um, somebody who can actually do it. And he, you know, Cronenberg was a little reticent. He said, I have to see her uh, act and see if she can actually carry it before I can agree with that. And Marilyn Chambers came in. She she was the um, what was the Palm Palm uh, Palm Olive girl. Uh, and then, uh, which was all like 99.99% pure, I think was their <laughs> marketing slogan. And of course, all of that fell to pieces as soon as she appeared in Behind the Green Door and started her uh, career in adult films, And uh, which is kind of just a funny backstory. Um, but he had her come in to try out and he said, you know, she did a great job. She actually could carry it and everything. And honestly... Watching her on screen, I think that she definitely carries her own against the other people who she's acting with. Absolutely. I had I had no doubt like she certainly was, you know, right up with everybody else on screen uh, with her. I I I just had no question that she was she was talking in the right place. I think she walked that line between menacing and uh, sympathy, uh, you know, through the balance of the second half of the film. Well, I was watching her particularly close because this was the the first thing I 
can remember actually seeing her to take her seriously, I guess, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to see how she's going to do with this. And um, I, I think she actually, I think she did just a, a, a fine job. Until, like, I, I would not have known that she was an adult film star yeah. acting in a film without having read about it beforehand. Like, I just didn't even know. I, I don't think I even knew who Marilyn Chambers was until we were talking about it and I was doing research for this project. So it's interesting to see that she carries it off and, and she just seems like a 70s actress. And Cronenberg yeah. said he was really disappointed that she never was able to kind of get out of that pigeonhole that she had been put in because she wanted this to kind of kick off an opportunity to be in some more regular types of films. It just never worked out. She was great and and not as a as a uh, pornographic actress. She was great as a performer in this film. That's the bottom line. I did have a chuckle, though, when she she hits this point in the film where she realizes that she has to feed on blood. And she and because I, I feel like the first few times that she feeds, it's this thing where she just almost doesn't even realize it. Um, like she wakes up from her coma and just feeds on this guy who's just, you know, in her room because she was screaming. Mm -hmm. and uh and then the guy who comes in when she's feeding on the cow and she realizes she can't do that and it, so there's a few uh, a few times where she's attacking people without it seems to re she doesn't seem to quite realize what's going on but then when she's she goes and hangs out with her friend and she kind of hits this point where she realizes what's happening and she becomes kind of the predator and she goes out and the place she picks to actually um hunt is a porn theater. Yeah. Not great. I thought that was actually very cheeky yeah. of of Cronenberg yeah. to put that in there. Very funny. I did too. And the whole pickup, the you know, it was I, I thought was silly. And you know, here's the thing though, it, one of the film's very own tropes that it makes, I think, overuse of is Rose. There is a victim. You know there's going to be a, a bloodletting. Then they cut to just slightly after where she's already walking out of the theater and we pan yeah. across and see the victim or, you know, we see the guy laying on the couch and she's already gone. I mean, they do this a lot. They do the right. same thing over and over. And by the end uh, of that experience, we're sitting here uh, saying, OK, like this is plum overused. I'm now tired of it. I'm not surprised anymore. And uh, I'm not I'm not uh, it, it doesn't add any new sense of terror because we've seen it again and again and again. So I, I thought that was that was troublesome use of the same thing. The next time that I think it they shake things up a little bit and I think it becomes pretty interesting is where her feeding kind of runs headlong into the instance of her aftermath and what she's doing. And this is when she's at the mall. And she's talking to this guy who's kind of hitting on her and she's kind of getting ready to take him. And then all of a sudden, a crazy man just starts running through the place and attacks this guy that that she was talking to. And then, you know, the police gun him down. And oddly enough, Santa Claus, who happens to be right. there. Strange little moment. So it was an interesting little kind of uh, moment that we had where her the two sides of her story kind of intersect and i thought that was a nice shake up for that yeah it does the question is did they need so many uh you know rounds around that particular merry go round to earn the shake up and i my argument is they didn't i think that was overused. well you're probably right I, I and i don't know you know is there more that they could have been doing i don't know but i you're probably right if that she was just going around doing this would it have been better if we had seen more of the other crazies attacking people i don't know well and um, that was that was actually an, it's a this is a great time to bring that up it's one of the questions that i had on my list of things to talk to andy about tonight was there enough of the sort of crazy zombification element to this story for you uh or were you already just bought in on the fact that it was more of a vampirism story and you didn't need the mob no i i liked that 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 it had these two elements that's what i think the the strength of this film is is the fact that she's doing this one thing with this feeding without realizing that it's leaving this this trail of crazies who just blindly are attacking people 
I found that to be kind of this really interesting blend of all of this stuff. It, it wasn't that everybody else all of a sudden grew armpit penises and was going around also feeding on blood. I, I liked that it kind of took a different turn and it became much more frightening. You know, when the doctor goes crazy and he starts trying to cut off that fingertip and then gnawing on her hand, or when the guy in the back seat of the car attacks the driver, or uh, the woman in the subway, I thought was extremely effective. Or, or one of the best was the the dad who comes home to his house and and goes upstairs to find the baby's missing, and oh. then he finds the little tub just like full of blood, and then the mom comes out of the closet and attacks him. It's like it. There was great use of that element throughout the film that really, I think, was needed. Because like yeah. you said, if it was all just her in her different feeding situations, uh, it was already getting a little tried the, with the few times that we had of that. So adding this other element in, I think, helped make it a lot more compelling. Uh, that that whole sequence in the mall, I thought, was really great. And I am now so susceptible to mall horror that when I see it, like when I see the setting of a 70s mall and she's in there and she's sitting down and, and something weird starts to happen, I think, oh, my God, this is where this is where we're going to get the throngs of of zombies. Right. This is going to be it. This is going to be it. The zombie freaks are coming. And then I it, it took me a second to realize, ah. Uh, Romero hadn't made that movie yet. Like mm. this, this, of course, I am susceptible to it because of years after, uh, you know, but this movie was a full, Rabbit was a full year before, um, you know, Dawn of the Dead. We got, uh, you know, our, our mall zombification. And in that regard, I, I think actually uh, it, it, it short, sort of gives us a sense of what we can do when we see a bunch of mindless people just wandering around in in the mall space. It it felt very much more like a like a, a pre homage. What do you call that? Inspiration. Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's well, already a word for it. Yeah. Well, and also it's a nice way for him to explore kind of you know sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. And. I don't want to use inspiration in this particular case, but almost a precursor to the AIDS epidemic and just like passing around these diseases and you don't even realize that you're passing it around. It's an interesting thing to kind of be kind of tapping into as far as what's going on in society. And I, I think smartly putting it into a story in a context that would become, you know, much more horrifying in the real world just a few years later. Uh, it's prescient. Yeah, very much so. This movie. Also, Cronenberg, I, this was kind of just as far as the whole idea of technology and everything is uh, kind of the horror technology aspect. This isn't quite horror, but I did think it was interesting. He was talking about the use of telephones in the film and how he had seen like, you know, telephone conversations replacing real conversations and and sensed that this was going to change in society. And so he actually had some of the key scenes playing over the phone, including the final scene, the final conversation between Rose and Hart as they're having this conversation as he's trying to convince her not to, you know, try to do this test and see if she can survive or whatever. Um, and it was all over the phone. He said, you would never do that. You know, you'd never have like a key conversation over a telephone. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, he felt that phones were kind of becoming used more and more. And, and interestingly, I think another thing where he was very prescient as far as how phones are used in such a uh, part of our lives nowadays. It sets the stage for the call is coming from inside the house, right? I mean... <laughs> Really, I, this is I, I think that's fascinating. Can you talk a, a, a little bit about we, we need to talk a little bit more about that, uh, about the the sort of threatening the fear nature of that final sequence. Right. Because uh, I, I think it worked really well uh, the whole idea that she had set herself up. Right. She went ahead and she fed off of this guy and she she realized that something funny was going on, but she didn't want to believe that she was the cause of it. So she left her victim dead in a chair presumably and then she she talked to her, to Frank and she's they're on the phone together as she says this is my plan i fed on him i think you're wrong i think you're crazy i think he's just dead and so i'm just going to sit here it's going to be great uh he's not going to wake up it'll be fine 
And of course, he wakes up. Of course, I don't he think she thinks. I don't think she thinks she's killing them. I think she thinks that they're unconscious. But they're going to wake up and be fine. But they'll wake up and yeah. they'll be fine. Okay. So yeah. in any case, he does wake up and the camera is positioned behind him. And we're looking at her lying on the couch facing away. And he, you know, he stands up with some cross-cutting back and forth. And we see a couple of shots on his face. And then he stands up and moves over her and you know as the shadow crosses her face of his body in the light and uh, she realizes what's going on and you hear Frank screaming on the other end I find it a very intense moment I think it was a a, a really sort of satisfying pinnacle to the to the the threat line across this movie what do you think I mean did it work for you as a horror lover oh absolutely that was a very interesting element to kind of have her in this situation where she is kind of putting herself into this situation and, you know, basically she's going to test this thing out. And you can tell that she, I mean, she's laying there and she's got kind of fear on her face, but it's this whole idea that she just needs to know. And she, cause she doesn't believe it. And yeah, it's, it's really nice to see cause she's just laying there and he's calling to her for help. It works. I, I think it works really well as she's on the phone and then uh, you know, you just see the phone kind of drop out as she sees this guy come up and she realizes. And then, of course, he's screaming. I, I don't know. I found it to be really compelling and just the I'm afraid thing as she as yeah. she screams, you know, before the guy lunges at her. Uh, it's I think it's really effective. It's. Uh, I think also in context of horror movies. It's the sort of ending that um, you are allowed to do in the horror movies, you know, you know, have your protagonist basically get killed by a bad Mm -hmm. guy and and not even killed. I mean, she's basically turned into a crazy like him. I don't know how she ends up outside, but, you know, the next time we see her, she's lying in, you know, a pile of garbage outside of this this place. And this dog is kind of sniffing at her and chewing on her, it seems like as she's twitching and then the garbage <laughs> collection people come up shoot her and then throw her in the dump in the in the back of their truck and she's clearly dead at that point like she's not pining for the fjords i mean she's no, rigor mortis yeah. is set in she's totally stiff yeah it's it's pretty interesting the way that that plays out i think it works really well for a horror movie can you talk just a little bit about john dunning in the spirit of getting this movie made because i think this is fascinating yeah, John Dunning, uh, he was one of the co-founders of Cinepix, which was a Canadian production company. He They founded it in 1962. They had done a variety of, of films, but I think largely what they were doing was kind of just real silly softcore porn and, you know, just a variety of, of stuff that was easier to sell. He had, uh, he was, because of that, he was pretty big in in. I guess, certain production circles. And after Cronenberg, you know, we talked about his, uh, the the way he got funding for his last film through the Canadian government mm-hmm. didn't work out so well this next round because, <laughs> because of the, uh, the complaints that they had. And so he ended up with Ivan Reitman hooking up with Cinepix and John Dunning, who came on as a producer of this and, and helped with the funding. Um, because they were actually looking to do some shifts a little more away from kind of the softcore porn uh, stuff that they had been doing. And this film helped them shift into some, they, or they, they started shifting into some horror films after this. And then with Ivan Reitman, they produced Meatballs a few years later, and they d- did more comedy. And it just led to this progression of this uh, company growing and changing and doing more and more different types of films until in 1997, it actually became Lionsgate Films because the the company. I feel had, like we need like a gong on that line, <laughs> right? It's so interesting that that's kind of where it ended up. But Lionsgate, at the time, was uh, I. It actually was um, Lionsgate Entertainment was funded by this this banker who bought Cinepix and kept their teams, and they renamed it Lionsgate Films so that they could kind of continue initially mostly distribution, but eventually also um, production. They were doing stuff with films that the major studios felt too controversial. And I think that that's clear right from this point. 
at the time when they were making these types of films. I think it's a really interesting progression. And so, friends, Rabid begets Rambo Last Blood. (laughs) It's a family tree. Yeah. I think that's a fascinating story. Yeah. Cronenberg had this to say about Dunning. He said, John Dunning is the unacknowledged godfather of an entire generation of Canadian filmmakers. I still consider him my movie mentor. May we live so long to have somebody say that about us. Here, here. Do you want to talk about anybody else in the cast uh, specifically? The only things I would say is as far as we started talking about last week about Cronenberg regulars, um, there are some here. Ivan Reitman, obviously, we already talked about as a producer who is on uh, Shivers and this. He After this, he's not going to be working with Cronenberg anymore. Um, Peter McNeil was an actor. He played the loader. I am assuming in the garbage truck scene. I'm not exactly sure where he was, but he uh, also will be in Crash in 1996 and A History of Violence in 05. So it's a long ways before he'll work with Cronenberg again. We won't be seeing him pop up in our series this time, but he does work with him. Um, Last week, we talked about Ronald Mlodzik who was an actor. He was a male patient in this film. This is his last time working with Cronenberg. He worked on his first two um, avant-garde films and then Shivers. Then we have uh, Joe Silver, who popped up as uh, one of the doctors here as as Cypher, and he uh, was in the last film also, Shivers. And last but not least, Robert A. Silverman. He is in this film as, uh, I think he was credited as Bob Silverman. He's the man in the hospital, and he actually will work again on The Brood and Scanners and Naked Lunch and Existence. I uh, particularly like Joe uh, Joe Silver, uh, and he he is in the sequence. He's the dad. He goes to see and he finds the baby and or not the baby, but mom gets him and he that sequence highlights for me one of the most interesting uh production or I should say creature design choices what makes the green like bright neon green come out of their faces mm it's a good question i don't know i wonder if science has an answer let's give science a call i guess we'll never know sequels and remakes andy i hear rumors oh indeed have you heard of the soska sisters peter ha- have i <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't until uh learning about this remake. They are uh it's a pair of twin directors who have directed some horror films such as American Mary, Regurgitated Sacrifice, and of course, Dead Hooker in a Trunk. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. That's been watch list. Must, I don't know why yeah. we haven't done a Suska Sister what? series yet. Well, anyway, they are doing a remake of this film, and Laura Vandervoort Vandervoort is playing the role of Rose. You should be familiar with her, Pete. She played Supergirl in Smallville. That's exactly right. Uh, It's it's very interesting, and it's another, like, uh, it it looks like uh, trying to recapture that Canadian horror magic of 1977. I guess. uh, All of these people. Yeah, I guess that's what they're trying to do. It looks like this film already has played at some festivals, the Fright Fest in the UK um, just last month and at Fantasy Film Fest in Germany earlier this month. And then it's going to be, it looks like it's going straight to DVD in the UK in October. I don't know if this is going to get much of any sort of release outside of that. Andy, I I can't believe I'm having this. I'm looking at Laura Vandervoort's credits. Andy, mm-hmm. sure, she was in Smallville. Sure, she was uh, in Jigsaw. Fine, whatever. She was also, if you'll recall to our very earliest episodes of this very podcast, me singing the praises of the remake of the hit 80s television series V, Visitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that show ran from 2009 to 2011. Our show started in 2011. So it was already history for me when we started talking about V. Now let's talk about the future. Laura Vandervoort is in V Wars, Andy. (laughs) V Wars to be released sometime soon. Seven episode series. She is playing uh, Mila Dubov. Is it the same V, Andy? Dare I be so hopeful? I am guessing it will be. Well, I don't know. Listen to this. Dr. Luther Swan enters a world of horror when a virus is released in ice melting to a a climate change. 
Oh, my hopes are dashed. Sound. Yeah, sorry. Oh, well, that was a fun little sorry. roller coaster. Wah, wah. She was also <laughs> in The Lookout. I liked The Lookout quite a bit. And you should love this. She was in Ted. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, big so, fan. She's great. Yeah. Van der Voort. Van der Voort. So anyway. Uh, how to do an awards season? Horror movie? I know those are huge for awards. Well, they are at horror festivals. That's about it. <laughs> at the Sitges Catalonian International Film Festival, which is a horror festival that Cronenberg won an award at in, for Shivers. He did win Best Screenplay, and Al Griswold won Best Special Effects. So uh, oh. there you go. Well deserved. Mm-hmm. At a horror fest. Well done. And <laughs> the box office. Uh, were you able to convert from, from loonies? Cronenberg's budget did creep up a bit from his previous outing, even with his battles against Parliament last time. For this film, he ended up with $525,000, which is about $2.2 million in today's dollars. Definitely a bump up. The movie was released April 8th, 1977, appropriately opposite Demon Seed. It was a box office success for Canada, earning $7 million back and landing it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $301,000. That seems like an improvement. It's an improvement. I, I, it didn't crest the the most profitable film in Canada like Shivers did, but yeah. still, still, it did well for itself. All right. Well, Andy, I think uh, with that, it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the list of all of the movies we've talked about on this very show. And you'll, uh, if you swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flickchart, you'll be taken straight to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Rabid or the 1937 A Star is Born. Rabid. I'm going to say A Star is Born. Okay. You can have it. Whew. Oh. Dodged a okay. bullet. <laughs> all right next up we have rabbit or robin and marion i will say rabbit yeah okay all right rabbit or oceans 12 uh oceans 12 so many people think it's their worst of them but i like that one so i'll say oceans 12 as well yeah rabbit or lupin the third the castle of caliostro lupin the third please i think i will say rabbit really I'm a little wishy-washy on this one. I, I'm curious. You I wonder how, how hard you will say, Rabbit. All right, you twisted my arm. Lupin gets it. Call it a win. <laughs> rabbit or Red Belt? I will take Rabbit. Red Belt. Red Belt hard. Hard. <laughs> We're going to have to go to the mat on this one. Ah, Sorry. Here we go. One. One. Two. two three. three. Rock. Oh, Ooh. thank goodness. Red Belt takes it. Rabbit or the host? We'll take Rabbit. Uh, the host. Here we go and again. And uh, one, one, two, two three, three. Scissors. scissors. Rock. Scissors. Man. You bring in your real chump game today, Andy. Chump game. Terrible. Rabbit or Christmas in July? Definitely Christmas in July. Christmas in July. Rabbit or They Came From Within, a.k.a. Shivers. Oh. <laughs> Rabbit. <laughs> Rabbit. It's very confusing when they call it that on Flickchart. Yeah. Thanks, Flickchart, for really screwing it with you us. Really screwed it up. Rabbit or La Femme Nikita? Uh, La Femme Nikita. I'll say Nikita as well. Well, that puts Rabbit at 313, one spot above Shivers. That's interesting because I liked Rabbit a lot more than I liked Shivers. I did too. That's interesting how it came down. I it, it's I just as we were doing this, I was flick charting it on my own uh, because I forgot to do that, <laughs> and I'm surprised where it came out. How did it come out? Uh, how did it come out on yours? For mine, it came out at thirty one sixty four out of forty two oh five. So uh, you know it that would for, it did pretty well for itself, I would say. And do you do you recall handily where Shivers came out on yours? Uh, I could tell you. I'm, I'm stalling about, too because I'm looking yeah. for mine. Uh, let's see, Rabbit was so that's actually about a twenty five percent for Rabbit, which seems low. And I, Shivers came Sh out at fifty percent. Shivers was fifty percent for me. So weirdly, I don't know what Rabbit was coming up against, but it fared much worse on my chart. 
Yeah, I, it actually fared a little bit better on mine. So my shivers came out at 7.05 out of 14.09. So that is straight up 50%. And Rabid came out at 6.05 out of 14.09, which is 57%. So if I were to go by the algorithm, uh, shivers would have been two and a half stars. This would have been three stars, a a mere half star bump uh, uh, up from from shivers last week i think it was i i'm gonna give it a whole star better i'm gonna call this three and a half stars and be happy with that uh over at letterbox.com slash the next reel how about you yeah i uh i had given shivers a three star uh and a like and here i'm doing three and a half also and there we like. go so All we're right. we're samesies samesies andy i would not have been able to predict that going into this thing we're two for two <laughs> Clearly, I am going to have to re-rank Rabbit because I'm like, how did it fall so low? Now I've ranked some other things, so maybe it's not going to come up against those things and it won't drop. So, What is your but, personal block right now? What's your old brother block? Do you have one? Well, it changes all the time. I can't remember, honestly. I'd have to jump into Flickchart. And I have you. had one. Well, I know it's right in front of me because I, I've been ranking a lot right now. And right now, my old brother block is the four brothers block. It's right, right in the middle of my thing, Four Brothers. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I That's can't I remember. I, I know Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was there for a, a few, but it, it didn't last. So I don't know what it is right now. Well, anyhow, this was, uh, it's a fun follow-up to Shivers, and I would love to know, Andy, where do we go from here? Yeah, it was a it was a better film, and it will be interesting to see where we go next. We're jumping to 1979. And Cronenberg actually has two films that he uh, does in 1979. And the first of which that we'll be looking at is a very much departure for him. It is Fast Company, which is a it, following one of his other loves, which is automobiles. This is a car racing movie. What are we what are we even doing a movie like this? It feels like we shouldn't even talk about it, but we're going to. That's right. We're controversial. <laughs> Great talk, Andy. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And we both went south this time. We've got some clear one stars Very from clear. the bowels, the depths of the Amazon uh, well. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, okay, I've got a shorter one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and kick it off and let you have the, the stage. I will be your entract. Do it. If I may. James says, no cure for this film. I consider myself a big horror fan, what with a video collection of about 110 plus. But this is a bad egg of which I regret owning. I hate this film, to be perfectly blunt. The only Cronenberg movie that's half decent is The Fly. I found this film far too slow, and character development was totally scarce. The FX are naff, and it seems like an excuse for ex-porn star Marilyn Chambers to get her kid off every few minutes. What's with the virus mutant thing coming out from the armpit? Wouldn't it have been more creative to have it coming out of other, more visible parts, like the mouth or something? This could have been a good film, but to me, it's one of the ellipses. Movies ever made. Avoid. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. It's one of the ellipses movies. I wonder what he has to say in the ellipses. Mm. Naughty, naughty. Mm -hmm. I feel like I didn't. I don't know the accent to be able to go along with some of the vernacular in there. I'm not sure what naff is. Bad egg, naff, get naf. her kit off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm thinking British. I'm thinking that's British. But maybe. Yeah. New Zealand? I don't know. Any Maybe. Kiwi listeners, let me know if you're NAF and if you uh, tend to get your kit off. I would like <laughs> oh, to know please. if anybody right is getting away. their kit off. Help right save away. us. Yes. <laughs> well, I've got another one star uh, by Holly Apollyon. Uh, I pulled this one right out of my armpit anus. And <laughs> <laughs> she said, a tooth in the armpit saves nine. If you are ever in the mood for a movie that will leave you with the most profound sense of, huh? 
This is it. It's about a woman who, with her boyfriend, falls victim to a motorcycle accident. Afterwards, she's in some kind of a coma. When she comes out of it, she has, for reasons undetermined, a tooth growing out of her armpit. If we're waiting for the punchline, unfortunately, there is none. Anyway, she then begins to seduce men, first from among the hospital staff. She gets them in the sack, they start rolling around, and then wham! Out comes the armpit tooth. She bites her victims with the tooth, and they become all rabid. Pasty white face, dark circles under the eyes, frothing at the mouth, like the victim of a full moon marathon. Now, the rabid victims go around and start attacking others to spread the disease. But apparently, if you're the carrier, which is to say the one with the tooth in your armpit, you are seemingly immune to all other symptoms of the disease. By now, the dreaded rabiditis has spread all over the place. The police and health authorities are called in. The local shopping malls are no longer safe. When asked to comment, the mayor says, huh? Biohazard guys start going around and shooting the rabid people and throwing them in the back of dump trucks. Eventually, the carrier realizes that she's causing all the trouble and decides to lock herself in a room with one of her victims before he goes rabid. What's the ultimate moral to this story? Try not to go teeth in your armpit? Or maybe avoid women with teeth in their armpits? I don't know. You decide. Oh, no, I've decided. Have you already decided? I've decided all of those things. I feel like she is, uh, she's really, uh, her her review isn't taking this seriously enough. <laughs> yeah, I like one of the people who left a comment said, I'd love to read your review of Alice in Wonderland. The moral <laughs> of the story is avoid rabbit holes. <laughs> I uh, I do have some real time follow up, uh, if if I may, Andy. Ooh. Um, NAF is uh, in British slang. And it is a euphemism for the F word. Oh. Mm-hmm. In oaths, imprecations, expletives, for example, naff off, making it slightly less obvious than F, like, you know, and an adjective naff, vulgar, common, despicable, said to have been used in 1960s British gay slang for unlovely and thence adopted into the slangs of the theater and uh, beyond. Right? Wow. Okay. It's, it's British, and now I know, and so I'm really sorry for my expletive-laden rant. I didn't know. <laughs> so, oh man! There wow. There you go. That's all I got. You learn something new every day. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.